Hello and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. This is part two of our introductory episode, where we've been talking about many of the numbers and underlying trends that helped create mass incarceration and providing an overview for listeners at home. Research clearly shows that we can reduce the number of people in prison and promote public safety, and that we seriously over-incarcerate. In short, mass incarceration as a phenomenon just doesn't do what it claims to do. But if that isn't reason enough to care about the prison system, mass incarceration is also a huge social justice issue. Many writers and activists have shown a significant link between race and incarceration. In 2010, Michelle Alexander published her explosive book, The New Jim Crow. In this book, Alexander clearly shows the link between race in America and the criminal justice system. Her argument hinges on the fact that African Americans are hugely overrepresented in the criminal justice system. The NAACP said that in 2014, African Americans made up 34% of the prison population and were incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white Americans. These numbers are way higher than the general statistics in the U.S. population. In the last census, black people made up only 13.3% of the American population. Alexander argues that this discrepancy speaks to larger inequalities in the justice system, which unfairly impact people of color. She draws a striking parallel between the incarceration of black men in America and historic racial structures of oppression like slavery and the Jim Crow laws. She argues that the outcome of our current carceral system is remarkably similar to the outcome of slavery and the Jim Crow era. Due to felony convictions, huge numbers of black men are legally barred from voting and face completely legal discrimination in areas from employment to housing, education, public benefits, even jury service. Alexander makes a compelling argument that while the language we use to justify this system of inequality changed into a language of criminality, the basic structure of oppression remains the same. Alexander's writing provided an essential basis to spark national outrage against racial profiling on behalf of police officers, police brutality, and to open dialogue around the over-incarceration of people of color. She connects the emergence of certain government and police policies like the discretion that police officers exercise when stopping cars and the Reagan administration's war on drugs, to over-incarceration. I strongly recommend reading the entire book if you're interested, but I'll summarize one of her extremely convincing case studies here. In the introduction of the book, Alexander addresses the assumption that the war on drugs occurred in response to the crisis of crack cocaine in America's inner-city neighborhoods. Since the over-incarceration of black Americans and people of color drastically increased during Reagan's war on drugs, many people argued that the racial imbalance of the criminal justice system was an accidental side effect of the government's attempt to address drug abuse. Specifically, many critics link skewed incarceration rates to the cocaine crisis, which the Reagan administration framed as one of the greatest crises in the U.S. But, The war on drugs and mass incarceration of black Americans began long before the 1980s when Reagan spoke about widespread cocaine use and the media sensationalized the use of crack cocaine. Instead, 
The war on drugs began under the Nixon administration in the 1970s, at a time when many legislators and advisory groups supported marijuana decriminalization. In the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander flips the narrative around the war on drugs, arguing that federal policy actually contributed to the development of today's prison system. You might ask yourself why the Nixon administration declared the war on drugs. Just hear it from one of Nixon's assistants, John Ehrlichman. He said in an interview with Harper's, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. In that interview, Ehrlichman reduces the war on drugs to the same political pressures I discussed earlier. By fueling the public perception that domestic unrest, including social movements, destabilized the country, and by fear-mongering about drugs and crime, the government could justify huge expansions of the prison state. As the war on drugs continued across presidential administrations, America established new guidelines for drug offenses and made significant changes to federal drug policy. But government bodies didn't crack down on all drugs indiscriminately. For instance, one of Congress's most extensive pieces of drug legislation, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, established mandatory minimum sentences for possession of specific quantities of cocaine. A mandatory minimum sentence law restricts the discretion given to judges in sentencing. If someone commits a crime with a mandatory minimum sentence, then they must receive at least the penalty established by that law, or a harsher penalty. When the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed, the penalty for distributing crack cocaine, the mandatory minimum sentence one person would receive, was more than 100 times higher than the penalty for distributing powder cocaine. But the United States Sentencing Commission, a bipartisan group established to determine sentence lengths, concluded that crack did not have any significant difference, either molecularly or in users' physical reactions, from powder cocaine. ACLU reports found that the main difference between crack and powder cocaine was not any physical difference of the substance, but the different socioeconomic profile of the primary users. Because crack cocaine is relatively less expensive, it's used much more commonly among poor Americans, many of whom are African American. Pricier powder cocaine is used much more commonly by white Americans. The Sentencing Commission found that African Americans are more likely to be convicted of crack cocaine offenses, while white Americans are much more likely to be convicted of powder cocaine offenses. In this way, the unfair sentencing practices set up in 1986 sent poor and black Americans into the prison system for much longer than it sent rich and white Americans, even though there was no substantive difference between the crimes that both groups were committing. In fact, recent research shows that powder cocaine is used at much higher rates than crack cocaine. 12% of adults have reported coke use, while only 4% have reported crack use. In 2010, to address some of these concerns, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act. This act changed the gap between sentences for crack and powder cocaine from a ratio of 100 to 1 to a ratio of 18 to 1. 
The Fair Sentencing Act was a genuine effort on behalf of legislators to reduce some of the racial disparities driving mass incarceration. But while this legislation reduced the gap between crack and powder cocaine, the 18 to 1 ratio still doesn't reflect modern understandings about crack cocaine. There just isn't any scientific justification for a disparity in the sentencing laws. Any gap in sentencing has been shown to unfairly target crack users, who are more likely to be black, low-income, and less educated than people who use powder cocaine. And these racial disparities have real-life consequences. In his article, The Black Family in the Age of Mass Incarceration, Ta-Nehisi Coates outlines the repercussions of incarceration on black communities. Since incarcerated people are omitted from employment and poverty statistics, Coates says we underestimate the unemployment rates of black men. If you include incarcerated individuals, 32% of black men were unemployed in 2000, and for those without college degrees, the number was 42%. Even in the height of America's economic boom in the 90s, black men were seriously unemployed and underemployed. These numbers speak to the depth of poverty experienced by families suffering as a result of mass incarceration. The carceral system also puts a strain on families. In 2000, Coates says, more than one million black children had a father in jail or prison, and about half of those fathers had been living at home with those children prior to being incarcerated. About half of those fathers were also the primary breadwinner for their family. Coates and Alexander make an extremely similar argument. Families affected by mass incarceration and racially disparate sentencing suffer from a legalized form of discrimination. To provide some perspective, here's what Saquon R. Merritt had to say about the impact of his incarceration on his family. It was, it, it was, it was rough because when I, when I got stressed, they got stressed. And um, you know from my story, I, I had uh, 25 years without parole for uh, um, a minor crime, a minor crime, minor drug offense. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to do so much my expectations and my um my dreams were so high and i used to convey that you know to my family on the phone what i was doing as far as college what i was doing as far as reading and i'm as, as i'm speaking to you now i'm thinking like how much it was so much of a stress on me mm-hmm. now i'm thinking how much of a stress it was on them because they had to listen from that you know from from the other end of the phone and they had to um, sympathize with me wanting to do so much more than be in prison, but you know you just couldn't. Yeah. You know you just couldn't. It's just like it's like you're in it's like uh, it's like you're in a bottle, and you're 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 a plant or tree, and you're trying to grow out, and you just can't because you're just in this bottle with this tight cap on there. So no matter how you know, how how long your branches grow into these, you know, different and beautiful things. These different branches represent different ideas and represent different op- opportunities you want to take advantage of, but they can't go anywhere. They're just stuck inside of the bottle. And I think my family just was looking at that bottle like we can't get them out, Yeah. you know. Saquon also told me about the effect that his incarceration had on his relationship with his son. I'm trying to figure, figure my son out. Mm-hmm. Figuring my son out was, was kind of difficult. Trying to, you know, it, I didn't want to seem like I was prying, but it seemed like I just kept 
passing question after question after question because I'm trying to figure him out. And he's, you know, he's 14. So he's like, you know, he's he, everything to him is really like, you know, nonchalant. So mm-hmm. he's like, you know, so that that that's still still difficult because, um, you know, I'm here now. So it's like like I said, I'm just dropped off in a presence and I'm trying to trying to be this father, this mm-hmm. man to him. And um, you know, I'm I'm at school, and now I'm calling teachers. You know, I'm questioning his mother about you know things she's doing with him, and I gotta realize that's that's kind of you know different from for them. Mm-hmm. They're used to you know me being where I'm at. They're not used to me being um uh in those you know kind of like I guess it's kind of like in that business. You know what they call people in their business. You know, in that business, even though I am the father, yeah. so s- sometimes they kind of you know treat me like an outside man. He's gonna. It's like I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. so my son, you know, told me one time about you know you know I get cold a lot or something like that. I was like, no, Julia, I I didn't know that. Like, you know, I looked down. I said, I don't know. You got to tell me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, that that's kind of you know that that's that's still kind of kind of difficult. Marcus Lilly also told me about the effect of his incarceration on his family. I'm having a struggle with my son because when I got locked up, my son was eight months and I was incarcerated for 13 years. He's now 14. He doesn't know me. He, he, he's not uncomfortable around me, but it's a, it's a process of him getting to know me. And... I know my incarceration has had a great effect on how he perceives his father or maybe how he looks at men in general. I haven't had an in-depth conversation with him yet, but you know our relationship has been strained. You know, I, I always dreamed of coming home and taking my son to Dave and Buster's or basketball game and, you know, apologizing to him for leaving of course and 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 envisioning him venting you know getting his uh anger at me off his chest and then you know us moving on but um it's been it's been a struggle you know i'm I'm still trying to be in his life uh his his mother for me provides obstacles through that to our bond maybe because she was she resents me from get, for getting locked up in the beginning and kind of leaving them to fend for themselves, and I understand that. I definitely can't say anything against that because I did. I I made my own decisions, and my decisions had consequences, and I'm kind of um, dealing with them now. So that's definitely a struggle. Um, with my mother, um, I didn't really talk to my mother a lot while I was incarcerated. And matter of fact, in general, this is kind of wrap that up. Um, in general, I didn't talk to a lot of my family members while I was incarcerated. So the person I am now is very new to them. Uh, because I was very ignorant when I was home. You know, I didn't have any goals, didn't have a vision. I didn't have a, sense of community, like a sense of what family really is supposed to be. I kind of grew up in a dysfunctional home. 
Um, and I would even go to say, you know, I didn't really have that much love for myself. Um, but during my incarceration, I did a lot of self-evaluation. I did a lot of reading. I worked on myself every day. And I had a vision of the man that I wanted to become in front of me. And I chased that vision my whole 13. Well, I ain't going to say my whole 13 years because in the beginning, I was still kind of acting up. But like in the middle of that 13 years, I started chasing that vision. And what I realize now is like my family kind of don't know who I am. They still look at me as the same uh, Marcus that, you know, got locked up. And it's a process with that because gradually they're getting to know that, you know, um, I think differently now. Um, you know, I kind of see things differently. I move differently. I have different goals that go against you know, some of the goals that they may have expected of me, like old friends, they expect me to come and hang around and, you know, have a beer and kind of chill out. And I don't do that. I go to work, I go to school. And, you know, even with my brother, he wants me to hang out with him a lot. And I just, this is not something that I want to do. So it's like, it's a lot of conflict there with, you not being in communi constant communication with your family and them not really getting a grasp on who you are growing to become when you do get thrown out into society. It's like this, this, this new person is just thrown back into this old same situation. And you got to try to find, you got to try to deal with it. So I've been going through that. It's, it's, it's definitely a struggle. Recent writers started to expand on the ideas that Michelle Alexander laid out in her book. In the book Caught, Marie Gottschalk explains the changing demographics of the prison system. She acknowledges that mass incarceration disproportionately hurt African-American men, but argues that the oppression created by the system extends much further. Gottschalk says the racial demographics of the prison system shifted, so now Hispanics make up 35% of federal prisoners, the largest ethnic or racial group in the federal prison system. She argues that this shift happened because immigration systems got folded into the federal prison system. Immigration raids and prosecutions are now incorporated into the prison structure, expanding the reach of the state. When someone's sent to immigration detention, they're sent to a prison run by the federal government. In fact, in recent years, the disparities between the rate at which black and white people are incarcerated actually declined, and the incarceration rate for poor white people, Hispanic people, and women grew immensely. Gottschalk recognizes the argument that America over-incarcerates through racist drug policy, but emphasizes two key statistics. First, even if we released all drug offenders, the U.S. would still have the world's largest prison population. And second, even if African Americans were imprisoned at the same rate as white Americans, the United States would still have an incarceration crisis. 
The rate of incarceration for white Americans in the 2010 census was 450 for every 100,000 citizens. If you remember the numbers from earlier in this podcast, that statistic is still staggeringly high. In fact, if everyone were incarcerated at the same rate as white Americans, America would still be the world's seventh largest incarcerator, coming in above Russia and China. As James Q. Whitman, a professor at Yale Law, put it, the United States penal system has the tendency to, quote, level down. When it puts new punitive measures into place, those measures may first hit black Americans the hardest, but they spread to affect all groups. Gottschalk argues that the entrenched prison economy fuels this oppressive system. The prison economy is another topic that we'll discuss in coming episodes. But for now, let's just say that the prison system not only disadvantages black Americans, but seems to be expanding into a system that harms poor people, people of color, people with mental health conditions, and women. Remember Khalif Browder, who I mentioned earlier? The young man who was held in Rikers Island for three years? He was held on a bail of $3,000 for a crime that he did not commit. Because the amount was out of reach for his family, he spent three years on Rikers Island and a great deal of time in solitary confinement. He was arrested just before his 16th birthday. Shortly after his trial in 2013, he was found innocent and released. By 2015, at age 22, Khalif committed suicide. Khalif's story is one of the most sobering examples of how economic class can impact someone's experience with the criminal justice system. If his family had the means to post bail for him, Khalif would not have spent years on Rikers Island awaiting trial. To wrap up today's episode, we'll explore what the outlook on criminal justice reform is like today. In his inaugural address back in 2016, Trump spoke about, quote, the crime and gangs and drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. He claimed that, quote, this American carnage stops right here and right now. The last time that a president addressed rising crime in his inaugural address was Bill Clinton in 1997. At that time, the crime rate was near all-time highs. But today, the national crime rate is approaching an all-time low, 42% lower than it was back in 1997. The Brennan Center put out a report on Trump's stance on crime during his first 100 days. Over that time period, Trump repeatedly returned to the tough-on-crime rhetoric we discussed earlier in this podcast, perhaps indicating a new shift back to the tough-on-crime rhetoric that was popular in the 90s and the 2000s. He's repeatedly claimed that the national murder rate is the highest it's been in decades, when actually the murder rate is significantly lower than it was merely 20 years ago. He tweeted glaringly inaccurate statements regarding the racial statistics of homicides in 2015 and touts the belief that America is suffering from a massive crime wave. These statements provide Trump and his Attorney General Jeff Sessions with justification for expanding law enforcement and the carceral system. The creation of anti-crime task forces and executive orders addressing the, quote, phantom crime wave contradict bipartisan consensus on mass incarceration. Trump's tough-on-crime rhetoric also led to the introduction of harsh executive policies. The president has significantly increased immigration enforcement and detention. But as we discussed earlier, those policies actually lead to huge numbers of immigrants being detained for long periods of time in American prisons. 
the Justice Department has decreased their role in oversight of local police and reauthorized the use of private prisons, detention centers that are run by non-government for-profit organizations. We'll talk more about for-profit prisons in coming episodes. Perhaps one of the most explicit manifestations of the Trump administration's tough-on-crime agenda, though, is the Justice Department's renewal of the war on drugs. Since assuming office as attorney general, Sessions has publicly called for a return to harsher federal sentencing for drug offenders. In one of his first actions as attorney general, he instructed federal prosecutors to bring harsh charges against even low-level drug offenders. Many of these charges carry the punitive mandatory minimum sentences that we discussed. Since the Trump administration came into the Oval Office, the Justice Department has increased its prosecution of violent crimes and drug offenses. Even though there's widespread agreement that these tough-on-crime anti-drug policies aren't effective, and in some cases they're based on out-of-date information, the current administration continues to pursue them enthusiastically. There's still some hope, though. Many conservatives oppose mass incarceration because they see it as a form of government overreach. The Congressional Black Caucus sent Trump a scathing letter regarding his return to tough-on-crime policy. In my interviews with Professor Miller and Professor Howard from Georgetown University, I had the chance to ask both of them what they thought the future of criminal justice reform would be under current federal administration. You'll hear first from Professor Howard and then from Professor Miller about this issue. Well, I mean, I think there's a temptation to just say, you know, Trump is against reform and therefore reform will never happen. It's a disaster and it's all going to get worse. But the reality is that 90% of people in prison are in state prisons, not in federal prisons. So whoever's in the White House has, in the Department of Justice has no influence over the states. That said, there is still some symbolic influence. Um, and obviously there's influence on the federal level. And that influence right now, I don't think is particularly good because it's one that has law and order, tough on crime message, which, to be blunt, is really one of, of race baiting and of, um, of locking people up and warehousing people in longer and longer sentences and so on. So it's mixed. Um, I think there's been a lot of movement in a lot of states, including conservative states, to decrease the number of people in prison. There have been states like Texas and Louisiana, which are you know, deep red states that have actually decreased up to 25% in Texas with no increasing crime, I should mention. So that's a really positive development. There are other states, um, California, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, Connecticut, that have dropped their incarceration rates, also with no increasing crime. And um, I think that's going to continue, but it won't be across the country necessarily, and it won't necessarily be at the federal level. But I think that there are enough people on all sides of the political spectrum who realize that it's just insane for us to have this many people locked up behind bars, and that we have to have a more rational, more economical, more humane way of doing this. We reached kind of our rock bottom moment, and we need to continue to improve. And so it's probably not going to happen at quite the same rate with the current administration, but I don't think they're going to be able to prevent it from happening either. I do hear whispers that um, there might be criminal justice reform under this administration. The Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, 
has expressed a desire to continue and extend the Second Chance Pell program. That's promising. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't know what the Attorney General will do. That's Jeff Sessions right now. Um, and I don't know what Congress will do going forward. But perhaps most promisingly, it would be very difficult for Trump and Sessions to end the movement towards criminal justice reform. At the state level, voters approve of smart-on-crime initiatives instead of purely punitive policies. State prosecutors who need to win the approval of the public to win elections are sensitive to this sentiment. So as long as individuals across the country support reform efforts, as long as Americans stay engaged and care about criminal justice reform and vote based on that belief, there's only so much that any one government official can actually do. In this case, the power really is with the people. But if the mood in the states begins to shift back towards favoring tough-on-crime policies, we could see the strong emergence of a renewed war on drugs. That's why it's so important that all Americans engage with issues of mass incarceration. If we become aware of these issues and think critically about how we vote and who we're voting for, we can resist the same kind of baseless policies that led us to the mass incarceration crisis in the first place. That's the end of our episode today. Before I leave, I'm going to give you a quick summary of what else we'll be covering in coming episodes. In our next episode, we'll talk about the historic factors that led to mass incarceration. From the war on drugs to the history of redlining and the school-to-prison pipeline, we'll explore the public policy and economic forces that led to much of the bias we still see in the criminal justice system today. In subsequent weeks, we'll talk about something that many people call the prison industrial complex and explore the economics of prisons. Then, we'll cover the struggles of reentry, what makes it difficult for a formerly incarcerated person to thrive after they've been released from prison, and how we can better support formerly incarcerated people. I'll also go over some social theory and social science that can help us understand the criminal justice system. Finally, we'll end with visions of the future and ask the question, where should the criminal justice system go from here? If you're interested in learning more about the topics covered on this show, I strongly recommend reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, Caught by Marie Gottschalk, and the article The Black Family in the Age of Mass Incarceration by Tana Hesse Coates. Thanks for listening. Thank you to the band Broke for Free for the music you heard in this episode. Our intro and outro theme is their song XXV. You also heard samples from Warm Up Suit and Love Is Not, all by the band Broke for Free.